You are listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. I think I've heard my name mentioned more times in the announcements and I'm used to hearing a little scary. All right, this morning we're going to talk about walking in the freedom of God's grace. Let's read uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we're going to be talking about our Christian walk. What does that look like? And today I want to give us a balanced viewpoint of what it means to walk in the freedom of God's grace. Often when we think about our Christian walk, we think of a to-do and to-not-do kind of list of do's and don'ts. Or, on the opposite of that, we think that it's all by grace and there's no responsibility for us. But I want to present a balance understanding what God has already accomplished for us, what He's done for us, accomplished through Christ, and what our responsibility is as we walk this daily life. So, my illustration. I remember when I was in junior high school, I joined a model building club. Anybody here build models? Yeah, there's a couple. Well, there were 10 of us, and we would meet after school one day a week, and we'd put together our, our cars and our boats and our planes. I remember mine was a 1954 Chevy Bel Air hardtop, and it had the chrome down the side. And I remember standing in the store trying to pick out this model for the club, and we were going to put them together. It was going to take us probably the whole semester. And I remember standing in the aisle of the store looking at all the pictures on the the boxes, and trying to pick out which one do I want to build. And I'd compare one to another. And finally, I made my selection, but it seemed like hours that I stood there in the store, and probably, you know, it was maybe 10 minutes, but in the mind of a teenage boy, it seemed like hours to make this decision because I didn't want to mess up. I wanted to get the right one. But soon after I started the project, well, I was terrible at model building. I got a confession to make. You know, the confession's good for the soul, so I was terrible at it. And my stinkiness came out once I started building the model. See, I'd get in such a hurry to have my model, this box of pieces with little tabs and numbers, look like the picture on the front of the box that attracted me to this 1954 Chevy Bel Air hardtop. And so... In my rush, I missed important steps along the way that seemed unimportant at the time, but then when you get a few steps down, you realize how necessary those points are. Well, often, we approach our Christian walk in the same way. And how's that saying go? We put the cart before the horse, and that just doesn't work. Well, there's a pattern that's repeated throughout Paul's writings where in the first portion of his letters, he gives us the doctrinal truths. You know, that dry theology stuff, the doctrinal truths. And then he begins to shift, and then in the last part of his letter, he gives us those practical applications of what we can apply to our daily walk. But often, well, often, you know, he addresses our belief before he addresses our behavior. I almost got ahead of myself again because often we want to rush ahead and fix our behavior before we address our belief. And so today I'm going to use Paul's pattern, hopefully, as our outline in what does it look like to walk in the freedom of God's grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today I ask that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, you've given this message to my heart, and Father, I pray that it would come across clearly and 
that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that the message would be seed falling on fertile ground. Father, that your word would bring forth much fruit. Thank you for your love, your grace. Thank you for your mercy that we sing about it this morning. Lord, I ask that uh, you would just give us ears to hear and hearts to receive from you. Help us to find our peace and security that's in Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So point number one, addressing our belief. What do we believe? Where do we place our trust? In John chapter 18, Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate. And he was presented with a question about being the king of the Jews. And Jesus answered that he was born and that he came into this world to testify to the truth. To which Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? You see, since the foundation of time, man has been searching for truth, longing for wisdom. And even though he may not have been aware of it, he's been walking by faith. It was this desire to have wisdom and knowledge that first enticed Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They acted independently of God and partook of that fruit. And as a result of that, we are born into this sinful nature. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I mentioned walking by faith. Now, I'm not speaking anything spooky or mysterious here. All I'm talking about when I say faith is your belief system. And to walk by faith simply means that you function in daily life on the basis of what you believe. And we're all doing it. We're all walking by faith. I mean, think about it. You can't help but walk by faith. We walk into a dark room. What's the first thing you do? You flip a switch on the wall, and you expect a light to come on. We open a faucet, and we expect and we believe that water's going to run out and not gasoline. When we sit in a chair, we trust that this chair is going to support our weight. And so based on that belief, that faith, we sat down. Thankfully, it held my weight. <laughs> so you see that your behavior is directly related to your belief. I came across this article that I think illustrates this story perfectly. And it's a, it was written in the New York Times on January 17th, 2014. And it's written about a Japanese man named Hiro Onoda who had just passed away the day before at age 91. And what made this article stand out to me was that for 29 years, Mr. Onoda hid in the jungle on an island in the Philippines, believing that World War II hadn't ended. He refused to believe that. It wasn't until his 52nd birthday in 1974 that he finally surrendered. Here's his story. Lieutenant Onoda's last order in early 1945 was to stay and fight. Loyal to a military code that taught that death was preferable to surrender, he remained behind on Lubang Island, 93 miles southwest of Manila, with Japanese forces withdrew in the face of an American invasion. Anoda, an intelligence officer trained in guerrilla tactics, and three enlisted men with him found leaflets proclaiming the war's end, but believed that they were enemy propaganda. They built bamboo huts, pilfered rice and other food from a village, and killed cows for meat. They were tormented by tropical heat, rats, and mosquitoes, and they patched their uniforms and kept their rifles in working order. Considering themselves to be at war, they evaded American and Filipino search parties and attacked islanders that they took to be enemy guerrillas. About 30 inhabitants were killed in skirmishes with them over the years. One of the enlisted men surrendered to Filipino forces in 1950, and two others were shot dead, one in 1954 
and the other in 1972 by island police officers searching for the renegades. Lieutenant Onoda, although officially declared dead in 1959, was found by Norio Suzuki, a student searching for him in 1974. The lieutenant rejected Mr. Suzuki's pleas to go home, insisting that he was still awaiting orders. Mr. Suzuki returned with photographs, and the Japanese government sent a delegation, including the lieutenant's brother and his former commander, to relieve him of the duty formally. In Manila, the lieutenant, wearing his tattered uniform, presented his sword to President Marcos, who pardoned him for crimes committed while he thought he was at war. You see, this story illustrates how our behavior is directly related to our belief. So what if that thing that you believe in, what if it isn't true? What if that faith object that you've placed your trust in isn't trustworthy? We need to know the truth. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. The secular world is teaching that all truth is relative, and they call it relative truth or relative truth, and it's based on one's observation or their experience. It's based on perception. And it teaches that something can be true for one person and at the same time cannot be true for another. In other words, what may be true for you based upon your experience, your observation, or your perception may or may not be true to me. Lieutenant Onoda continued to fight a war for 29 years that had already ended based on what he perceived to be the truth. You see, our perception can sometimes be faulty. But in order to walk in the freedom of God's grace, we must accept that God's word is that standard of absolute truth. Now, absolute truth means that something is always true, regardless of conditions, always true. Even if I don't recognize it to be true, even if I don't believe it, that doesn't matter. It's always true. And God's word is that standard of absolute truth. And by it, we must measure everything else against because we need to put our trust or our faith, our belief in God's word. So, what does the Bible say about God's word? We read in John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So from this, we learn that God and His Word are one. We learn that God's Word is true and that God's Word is eternal when we read John chapter 17 and Psalm 119. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 reads, The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. So the Bible tells us that God and His Word are one that it's true, that God's word is eternal, and that it will stand forever. And so when we place our faith in God's word, and we're placing our faith in God. The second thing that is crucial for our walking in freedom is we must know our identity. So what does the Bible say about our identity? What does it say about us? Well, there's two ways of being identified from Scripture. And the first is being in Adam, identified as being in Adam. And the second is being identified as being in Christ. So to be in Adam, all that means is you're born. Because it's natural man in relation to the original sin. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Sin and death came into the world, and it spread to all mankind. So just the act of us being born and being in Adam, the Bible declares that we are sinners, that we've all fallen short of God's righteous requirements or His glory. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Make a mental note of desires and thoughts because we're going to address that when we get into our behavior. So, in Adam, we are all separated from God. We were his enemies. Without Christ, we were without hope. We were declared guilty and rightly condemned. But that's not the end of the story because God made a way where there was no way. While we were yet sinners, when we were separated from God, when we were full of hatred, envy, jealousy, when we were slaves to sin, His enemy, God sent His Son into this world in the likeness of a man to fulfill His righteous requirements. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 talks about this righteousness that comes from God. It says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God. It comes from, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. We all are familiar with John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it goes on that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him would be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, the moment we place our trust or our faith in Christ, there's a new birth that takes place within us. Our spirit is made alive, and we're given a new name, a new position We've been delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We're no longer identified as being in Adam. Now we are identified as being in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, Paul uses that 165 times in his writings, 36 times just in the book of Ephesians alone. For every reference that says that Christ is in us, there are 10 references that say that we are in Christ. So, we are identified as being in Christ. What does that mean? Well, we're identified in Christ's death. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You see, all that we needed as sinners was provided in the cross of Christ. He paid our debt. He cleansed us of our sins. And he freed us from this spiritual death. Paul makes it clear that the only thing that can, that can stop sin's rule over us was death. Sin had ruled over us. We were slaves to sin. But our sin nature, that nature that we inherited from Adam just by being born, was nailed to the cross with Christ and has died with him. We're identified in his crucifixion. So sin can no longer condemn us. We're dead to its laws. We no longer have to obey sin. We've been set free from the obligation to serve sin because we died with Christ and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, does this mean that we're incapable of sinning? 
No. But what it means is that we're no longer enslaved to sin. And as Mater says, we can choose to not to. We don't have to sin. We can say, no, not going to do it. Second, we're identified in Christ's burial and resurrection. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. We have died with Christ, and we've also been buried with Him. The burial, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ are historical events. Us being identified in His crucifixion, His burial, and His resurrection are spiritual truths, and they're acted out in the ordinance of baptism. Not only has our old self died, but it was buried, it was put away. And that's a fact that we can rest our faith upon. How's that commercials do it? But wait, there's more. See, when God raised Christ from the dead, that showed or it proved that his righteous requirements had been fulfilled. They'd been fully satisfied. And they've been fully satisfied by that atoning sacrifice of Christ. We don't obey and, and God says, okay, you've you behaved well enough that now you can be my child. No, our righteousness is filthy rags. We could never meet God's requirement. But when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed upon us. That old man, that old nature, that's died. It's buried. And we've been raised to new life. So we're identified in his resurrection. Our old self wasn't recycled. It was left in the grave. And we've been given a new life, a new spirit, a spirit that is now alive and united with Christ in God. We are a new creation, as the Scripture says. The old has passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Finally, we're identified with Christ's ascension and His glorification. And it's from this position that we can walk in that abundant life that Christ promised. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10 reads, For he raised us from the dead long ago, oh, raised us from the dead along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who united us with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. Isn't that a great picture? We're God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus. He's not taking the old and trying to recycle it, but he's created us anew. Now I lost my place. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 19, shows that place of authority where Christ is. And because we're united with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms, it shows our position of authority that we have when we submit ourselves to God. It says, I pray also that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power who, for us who believe him. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but in the one to come. And God has made Christ the head over all things. He's put all things under his feet and all things for the benefit of the church. So it's because of the resurrection of Christ 
that we've been given new life by the Holy Spirit. And it's out of this position that we can live that abundant life that Christ promised. Christ also promised that when he would ascend into heaven, that he would send us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is now living, dwelling within each and every believer. He's working in us, sanctifying us. That's that process of us growing up to be conformed into the image of Christ. So he's sanctifying us. And also, he's the seal guaranteeing that future glorification when the last day that trumpet sounds and we're raised to be changed in the twinkling of an eye into the likeness of Christ. Isn't that good news? Well, that's what God has done for us. That's what he's accomplished for us in Christ when we put our faith in Jesus. It's all by grace, by faith. Now, because we believe that, now we can look at point number two, addressing our behavior. What should our practical daily living look like? And remember, I said at the beginning, it's not a checklist of do's and don'ts. We're no longer under law. And even if we met every check mark, our righteousness is still like filthy rags. It's God's grace, and it's our faith in what God has done for us that now we can walk out our Christian life by faith in who we are in Christ. And God has put us in that position. Remember how Paul, in the second portion of his letters, he gives us those practical applications on how we can walk in our daily life? He uses words like since and therefore. And those premise the fact of, what has already been accomplished for us in Christ. And because that's true, now we can believe and walk out of our faith. So it's our responsibility to believe first and then to walk according to our faith. Remember that our belief ref is reflected in our behavior. So if you believe it, it's going to show. Also understand this. Everybody aware, because this is, this is crucial right here. And I'm going to say it a couple of times because I usually mess up when I say it, and then you're going, what? Hey, everybody listening, aware of it. Understand, we cannot do for ourselves what God has already done for us and accomplished for us in Christ. In contrast to that, there are certain things that God has called us to do and commanded for us to do that he's not going to do for us. And if we're waiting for God to do those things that he's called for us to do, not only are we going to be disappointed, but we're going to live a defeated life. So let me repeat it again. We cannot do what God has already done and accomplished for us. And God will not do what he has called and is waiting and commanded us to do. Everybody got that? Then let's move on. So in light of the finished work of the cross, finished work of Christ, let me share three points that are essential for us walking in freedom and walking in grace. And these three points are our responsibility. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice in this passage that it's in the imperative grammatical mood, meaning that these are commands. And as commands, they're not optional. It's not merely a suggestion. This is what God is waiting and expecting for us to do, is to, one, submit ourselves to God. Now, God doesn't make us submit we have a free choice. We can choose to walk according to the Holy Spirit and submit ourselves to God, or we can choose to submit ourselves to those desires and thoughts of the flesh. Submission to God is an acknowledgement of His Lordship. Sometimes in our 21st century thinking, we think of submission, we tend to think of it in a negative way. 
thinking that somehow it means that we're under the suppression of this authoritative, uh, harsh taskmaster. But that couldn't be farther from the truth because we're talking about our Heavenly Father who loves us with an eternal love. Even while we were yet sinners, He loved us and sent His Son to come into this world to pay the price for our sin. And He invites us to submit to His Lordship by submitting to His will, understanding that His ways are higher than ours. His will is higher than our will, and we must put His will first. Now, His love compels us also to be bondservants, and we're not talking again about slavery, meaning that we don't have a choice in it, but a bondservant is one who willingly submits and obeys. And that's what we're called as bondservants. But it goes beyond that because we're not just bondservants. He's adopted us as his children. You know, servants will work for a paycheck, but children receive an inheritance, and everything that the Father has is ours. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are called children of God. The second thing that is our responsibility is to resist the devil. Now, we're commanded to resist the devil because we're in a battle. But in order to resist the devil, we need to first submit ourselves to God. And we submit to the authority of Christ, which is above every rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named in this world and in the one to come. And it ultimately... The war has been won. Our victory is secure. The battle has been won. But it's those day-to-day skirmishes as we walk through this life. That's where we need to resist the devil. And it's only in our position and authority that we have in Christ that we can do so. If we try to step out of that and resist the devil, we're going to get thrashed. But when we stay submitted to God and under his authority, you remember the rank there, all things have been placed under Christ's feet. Where are we? We are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. As long as we stay in his authority and submitted to him, then we can resist the devil. Because Ephesians 6, 12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And where are those things? They are under the feet of Jesus. So in this battle, God has not only given us the authority to resist because of our position in Christ, but he has also given us the ability to resist. We are to put on the whole armor of God in order to take our stand against the devil and his schemes. Ephesians chapter 6 gives us the list. And there are six things that Paul lists out as being pieces of this armor. The first three pieces, we have already, they're already given to us the moment that we put our faith in Jesus. And the past tense there, having put on, means we're already wearing these. And that's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of the gospel of peace. The belt of truth is our defense against deception, which is Satan's primary weapon. He uses the lie, the deception, the accusation to come against us. But it's the belt of truth. How do you uh, defeat the power of a lie? You expose it to the truth. And Jesus is the truth. He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. The second piece is the breastplate of righteousness. And that's our defense against Satan's accusations. You see, we don't come against the devil in our own righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's not a to-do list. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. God has put on, he's imputed his righteousness upon us. And so it's in Christ's righteousness that we stand against the devil. And that's what holds all these other pieces together. The shoes of the gospel of peace. That speaks of our reconciled life back to God. We are now in right standing with God. And we have peace. We're no longer enemies of God. So it not only speaks of that, 
but it also becomes our protection against the divisive schemes of the devil, you know, where he tries to bring in factions and divisions and cause strife between people. When we walk in the role of a peacemaker, we encourage fellowship and a, recon- and a ministry of reconciliation. Now, the next three pieces of armor are what Paul says that we need to take up. So these are, again, our responsibility to put these on, and that's the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The shield of faith is what protects us from those fiery darts or those fiery arrows. And those are the lies, the accusations, the uh, temptations of the evil one. And the size of our shield, we all want a big shield, right? We don't want to have arrows coming in. We want a big shield. The size of our shield is determined by our knowledge of God and His Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So when we put our faith in God's Word, we believe God's Word, that increases our faith, increases the size of our shield. So if you want to know God's Word, here's the practical application. Read God's Word. Find out what it says. The helmet of salvation is what protects our mind. And this is where the battleground is. Noah Anderson in his book, The Bondage Breaker, describes how the devil comes against our mind and he'll try to put his thoughts in first person singular so that you believe that they're your thoughts. And if you believe them, you'll internalize them and then that becomes our perception. Remember, our perception can sometimes be faulty. So, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us not to be ignorant of the devil's schemes and that we fight with spiritual weapons that have divine power to demolish strongholds, arguments, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we're to take captive every thought that rises up against the knowledge of God and make it obedience to Christ. That Greek word for uh, thoughts and schemes is the same Greek word, and that's noema. And what that means is thought or what you think about. Six times it's used in the New Testament, and every time it's about how the devil introduces his thoughts into the mind of man. So our salvation is secure. Nothing can separate us from God's love. But we need to control our thoughts because if we believe the lies of the enemy, we're going to start behaving that way. It's going to be our perception. And that's why we need to renew our mind. And the good news is that if we've learned to believe a lie, we can choose now to believe the truth of God's word. The final piece of the armor is the word of God. as the sword of the spirit. And Paul uses the word rhema here to indicate that it's a spoken word he doesn't use the word logos which would indicate that it's the personified word of god or jesus so it's also the only offensive weapon that we have in this list of armor so we come against the devil by speaking aloud the truth of god's word and we not only need to say it aloud so that the devil hears it because he doesn't know our thoughts he imputes his thoughts into us but he can't read our thoughts He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. So we speak it it aloud, not only to remind him of the truth of God's word, but also to reinforce our faith and remind us of who we are in Christ. So our responsibility is first submit to God, resist the devil. And the third point, that's our responsibility, is not to let sin rule over us. We're no longer slaves to sin, and so it's our responsibility to walk according to God, Holy Spirit. Romans, 6, chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument or as a weapon of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law but under grace. 
You see, just knowing what the Bible says isn't enough. It doesn't do you any good unless you believe it and apply it to your daily life. We sin when we choose to act independently of God. When we try to gratify those desires and those thoughts of the flesh. And once you give in to the flesh, it's hard to turn back because the flesh, you can't satisfy it. It's that lust that continues and it can be anything from diet Pepsi to whatever the worst sin you can think of, lying. It doesn't matter. Once you give in to it, you, it's harder to turn back from that. And before you realize it, you've established this stronghold. See, the Bible tells us not to give place to the devil. And that word for place is the word topos or topos. And it's what we get for uh, topography or topographical maps. It means don't give any territory to the devil. Don't even go there. And we don't have to. That's the good news. Because we've been set free from that. It's our choice. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that if we walk in accordance with the Holy Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And it goes on in verse 19 through 24, and it talks about the works of the flesh. And I'll just list them here, and if you feel like you need to raise your hand, just feel free. I'm joking. Okay. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Anybody participate in these? Yes! They're all around us. Just read the headlines. But it goes on and says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. That's wonderful news. And this is what God has done for us. And because of that, we can walk in that. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Don't drink Diet Pepsi. Don't lie. It's because I am a child of God. I don't have to go there. I can to not to, the way Mater would say it, or I can say, uh-uh, ain't gonna happen. Yeah, somebody, there you go. So as I begin to close, let me give you some practical applications. Now, these are applications that I have found have worked in my life. If you would have seen me five years ago, I'm a whole lot better than I was then. 20 years ago, forget about it. I am a new person. And it's not that I have changed because my identity, the moment I put my faith in God eight, when I was eight years old at the altar in the Baptist church here in Oracle, that moment I was seated with Christ in the heavenly places, but I didn't know it. And the devil wants to keep you from understanding that you are no longer a slave to sin. You have a new identity. So five things that are practical applications that I've found worked for me. One, submit to God. Acknowledge his lordships. Declare your dependence upon him. Don't try to do it on your own. If we try in willpower, we're going to fail. But if you can walk in the position of who you are in Christ, you're going to find that you're going to have success. Point number two, if you don't like your behavior, check out what you've been believing because your behavior will always be reflected in what you believe. Point number three, be aware of your thoughts. That's where the battle is. And we must reject any thought that doesn't line up with the absolute truth of God's word. Fourth, be alert. We have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. He uses deception, lies, temptation, and accusations as his primary weapons. And the fifth thing is walk in the whole armor of God. Remember, the first three are already in place. 
the moment you put your faith in Jesus. You have the belt of truth. You have the breastplate of righteousness. And you have the feet or the shoes of the gospel of peace. The other three are our responsibility. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the word of God. We've been set free from the yoke of slavery. We're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new nature, a new position, and it's out of this identity that we can now walk in the freedom of God's grace by submitting to God, resisting the devil, and not letting sin rule over us. Let's take a look again at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for you and for all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We acknowledge your lordship in our lives and submit joyfully to your ways. I pray that your truth will penetrate our hearts and that our faith will be stirred. Father, it's through your truth that we're able to live a victorious life and freedom in Christ. Let us be alert and stand against the enemy. Let us take up the full armor of Christ. Thank you that you have enabled us to walk in holiness, resisting the entrapment of sin. And we rest today in the finished work of Christ. Let our lives reflect the light of Jesus so that the world will know you. Father, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Living Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it. Make sure you check out lwcoracle.org for more information.